a word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point, as it has been for the last several weeks, is going to be through the entirety of the now released Red Rising saga. So through the end of Lightbringer, but we will be talking about literally every single book today. So if you're if you're not well versed in the Red Rising universe, you got a lot of reading to do, but we'll see you here soon. Hey there, this is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast all about analyzing rhetoric and the importance of speech in literature. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly speech and debate training. Crossland sent me a six-page document talking about rhetorical devices earlier today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to, like, give you a little bit of prep work so that you would know (laughs) at the very least what I'm talking about. Not that you wouldn't, but it gives you a little bit more. There's some things that, you know, I might mention that, you know. We went through rhetorical devices in school. There are some words on there I have never seen before. There was one that despite like doing all my time writing great speeches like I had talked about before and like that being the category that I like gained a lot of this specifically like rhetorical analysis from I I can't remember what it was, but I had never heard of it before. Was it anaphora, which is not the term that I had heard used in the same way as the mm-hmm. rest of them and afra is starting uh successive clauses or sentences with the same thing i've always heard it as repetition i didn't realize that there was another word for it i would have so, just i if you would have asked me that before reading this document mm-hmm. i would have just said that was a form of alliteration interesting yeah but yeah not not entirely correct but i understand yeah so Ultimately, I also think it was nice to send that because now you maybe have some homework, but you've already done it. Maybe I don't uh, know a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so today, as mentioned, of course, this is actually a really interesting one. This sprung up because we had a sort of late readjustment. Zeph has a new kid at home, which is why we had to push off the episode a little bit to begin with. But he's sick this week. And so we are going to be recording that one next week for next week's release. And we are kind of doing this last minute off of a listener suggestion. So it's definitely kind of a special request, but it's also one that we had talked about doing, that we've like pitched the idea of doing even to each other vaguely. Um, and so we're doing a full retrospective on some of our favorite speeches in Red Rising up until Lightbringer. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm super excited for this. Thank you, Killian, for writing in the email um, and, and enjoying the coverage of Lightbringer up until this point. So. Stars totally aligned also on this because we got that email yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, it, this literally. Well, okay, I I saw it yesterday. We got it okay. a week ago. Oh, gotcha. I hadn't checked my email, but we did get it a week ago. So I I saw it, read it, replied, and then two hours later is when Zeph was like no longer able to. So this is going to seem like the craziest turnaround of a response, kind of in some ways, maybe. But yeah, I I'm very excited. And all this to say, make sure that you like email, write in, tell us your thoughts. We love to hear from you. It's it's always great. So we do. Yeah. I yeah. hear from you via Crossland, who screenshots them and sends them to me. 
Because yeah, oftentimes can. there's there can be spoilers within the within the deep depths of the email, so I tend to avoid it. And that's mostly just an excuse for me not checking the email. <laughs> True. True. If you checked it today, you would see that there are 43 unread emails and they're all from Descript, from comments, from building that other podcast. So <laughs> there's, Thanks, there's a lot Thanks to Script for sending us an email for every single comment. <laughs> uh, but needless to say, we pulled, you know, um, one, maybe two speeches from each book to discuss. Uh, I did stick by a hard and fast rule that we never repeated a speaker. So there is only one Darrow speech among the many that are that we're selecting. So I was very intentional with selecting different speakers. PJ helped, of course, with the selection as well, contributing ideas and kind of throwing. And we obviously went back and forth about what we wanted to talk about and what we didn't. So, mm -hmm. yeah, with that. Real quick, just because I know that we're not doing anything too complicated, PJ, what are you having this afternoon? You almost said, you almost gave it away. You almost said, what are we having? We're both having old fashions. But I they're different. Pene uh, Penelope barrel proof whiskey, mm -hmm. bourbon. And so I, I use, normally I use turbinado or demerara syrup, but I don't have any. So I just use normal simple. Two bar spoons of that, four dashes of orange bitters. And two ounces of bourbon alongside a swath of orange peel and a cocktail cherry. Nice. It looked really good, the glass. I'm jealous. I am I have precisely one whiskey at the moment, and it's Suntory, and Suntory is just so good straight that I didn't want to make an old fashioned with it. So, you know, or like with a cube. So I went with a Mezcal old fashioned instead. Nice. Straightforward, no modification, just Mezcal, simple. And I didn't have orange, so I did just a spritz of lemon on top for to still get like that acidity and Angostura bitters. So perfect. Nothing crazy. All right. Cool. So with that, let's get into the speeches here. Uh, so Red Rising, right? Red Rising was actually maybe simultaneously the toughest and the easiest to select from i think for speeches the reason it was the toughest is because there's really only one there isn't a whole lot else in the way of things that compared to the rest of the series feel like the same sort of speeches mm -hmm. yeah i this one sticks out off the top of my head and it, like i texted it to you right away and then i was thinking back and like is there any others is is there anything else that we could have chosen? And it's hard to say. Like maybe, maybe some conversation with like some of the proctors later. I I don't know. But yeah, there's there's a moment with Fitchner that's kind of speechy. There's there's a couple of different things that I'd considered. There's Darrow. And like there, there are a number of things that feel emblematic of something that like would have been a speech later in the series or could have been closer to one later in the series. There's like the interrogation of the jackal, of course, before we know that he's the jackal. Um, there, there are like a couple of different components there. There's uh, Pax and Mustang. There's the the conversation between brothers, even that happens on the lake. Um, there, there are like all these different components that I think are close but none of them really get there the confrontation the Nero with speech, titus maybe that yeah so that's that's what i was thinking like the the whipping and then eventually the duel whipping of tactus as well i mean not titus but yeah 
there's there's a couple of those components. I even went and looked through Dancer because I was of the opinion that maybe Dancer had a good speech. And he does kind of, but it's not really a speech. It's a, it's a conversation that Darrow's pretty involved in. And most of that conversation turns into a revelation in which Darrow is just looking out at this wider world and all of a sudden realizing that his life is more than the mine and he's been lied to. So mm-hmm. it's less talk, more shown, which is generally a pretty good rule for storytelling. So I can't fault Pierce for going <laughs> that direction there. I just thought Dancer had more of a speech. But that was my first instinct with this story. So The only um, other thing that we haven't mentioned yet is Nero addressing the mine before... Yes. Before Eo's execution. Yeah, I I thought about that one. I don't know. I don't know what you thought about it in general or like if you had. It's just not as meaty, I guess. Yeah. As yeah, what, what we chose that's, ultimately. That's definitely my take too. Part of part of the reason that we're gonna read the speech that we're gonna read here is because in my head, it's the impetus of the series. It's the very beginning. It is everything. It isn't the exact beginning of the story, but it is the hook that leads you into the rest of the series. So, I mean, pretty tough to like not to ignore that, you know? Mm-hmm. I considered combining it with the later moment in which he kind of addresses the because there's like a fusion moment. I remember we talked about this in the early Red Rising episodes where you're like, wait, doesn't why didn't they like repeat the speech in the text? And it's like because that would have been duplicate words and you would have been flipping back and forth and that might have been weird. But I decided just to make it that first that first page of speech. One important larger note for each of these speeches that we're going to be talking about, I've removed all of the internal monologue. There is no internal monologue. This is all about what they're saying. There's no feelings. Um, There's a a couple of instances as we'll go through these where there's some reactive text. Uh, In general, I'll read the primary voice. PJ will play the supplementary voices as they apply. um, And that'll be kind of the game plan. I can talk about it on my my acting hat. (laughs) (laughs) For like... A couple of different people. So, <laughs> all right, let's we'll kick it off here with Nero's speech that begins the whole story. I don't know if you can think of a title for this one outside of like the legacy. Legacy is kind of the my mental title for this speech. Legacy is good, or legacy of gold. Fit for power, maybe. Fit for power, sure. Okay, cool. Well, with that, let's get into this, and I'll read it here. So, all men are not created equal. The weak have deceived you. They would say the meek should inherit the earth, that the strong should nurture the gentle. This is the noble lie of democracy, the cancer that poisoned mankind. You and I are gold. We are the end of the evolutionary line. We tower above the flesh heap of man, shepherding the lesser colors. You have inherited this legacy, but it is not free. Power must be claimed. Wealth, won. Rule, dominion, empire, purchased with blood. You scarless children deserve nothing. You do not know pain. You do not know what your forefathers sacrificed to place you on these heights. But soon you will. Soon we will teach you why gold rules mankind. And I promise of those among you, only those fit for power will survive. Yeah, 
so there's, I, I know we're talking about rhetoric and I know we're talking about the speeches themselves, but I am absolutely going to be talking about the content also oh, yeah. in conjunction with it in a very strange, twisted, gross way. He's right, I guess, about not all men being created equal in this scenario. But the problem is that they created that imbalance themselves. <laughs> and what I find really intriguing about approaching this now when we have just finished Lightbringer is the parallels between this and Gaia's speech to mm. Diomedes. And and we, we had a, a long conversation about that, so I, I won't rehash it entirely, but um it's it's sort of this it, it's this folly of creating the systems that you're then acting as if are nature's way you know there's a way more elegant way to say that but um i think that gets the gist of it um i forget also another connection to lightbringer uh or to lysander specifically um nero using the term shepherd within this speech um there's not a whole lot of core golds that use that term in in any way it's not in the same way that lysander is he he uses it in in that he's uh defining shepherding as what they're doing now as opposed to lysander who's saying like bring back whether or not we we don't have to talk about whether or not lysander actually believes it but the way that he uses it is like the the path of shepherding has been lost and we need to go back to it whereas Nero has kind of redefined shepherding to be like what system they're in right now. And again, another connection to later on the term noble lie that he uses here being democracy is used in another speech we're going to be talking about today. And it actually drops the connection. You just know that he's talking about democracy when he talks about Darrow's noble lie. So, yeah, I think part of the reason that I also really like this is that still to this day, as far as we get in the story, we can we can talk about, you know, the different components. I don't want to spoil any of the speeches that we picked, of course, fully. But this is in many ways an outline for the entirety of the series. Like this is a, a great to your point, like shepherd is a term that directly impacts a lot of the different tone of Lightbringer. I mean, his Lysander's whole thing is the new shepherds. There, There is the noble lie that's thrown around quite a few times. There is this idea of, like, the empire purchased with blood, right? Like, a central metaphor of, like, this was a, a hard-fought battle for gold to be on top. Like, we've done this thing, and, you know, your, your peerless scars that make you above even the highest of golds are something to be earned. And yeah, there's there's a lot of that kind of floating within within the sort of subtext here that we've seen gradually play out over time. I feel like that's a great uh, segue into the rhetorical devices because I have a question mm-hmm. for you. And mm-hmm. I'm immediately like adding a new one. I don't know if it's true, but the, the, the term purchase with blood, we know to be literal. Like it, it is a very literal term. Could that be seen as a false hyperbole within this? I don't know. Maybe. 
I, I think about it like from the grander context of the the sort of inheritance of the society, which is that this entire system has been purchased with the blood of many over time. But in particular, the the big thing here, rule, dominion, empire purchased with blood, to me, the first image that that evokes knowing the entirety of the series is when the earth was cleansed of everyone on it to give the hierarchy its position the audience would know that as well eventually not now not fully you yeah. know okay. oh the audience of the speech the, yes yeah, the audience the, of the speech the audience of the yeah, speech yeah 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 thought thought you meant the audience of readers yeah. okay yeah right right i was like readers don't fully know that yet they Reader, know that you know, is a different color i was also kind of struck by you scarless children mm-hmm. and remembering trying to like figure that out like oh like we're not even trying to figure out but i remember when peerless scarred as a term came into my purview and remember for whatever reason this stuck with me and uh i didn't understand at all until like there, there's a lot to understand after reading the whole thing to this speech that uh, still makes sense. Like you still, you can still make sense of scarless children deserving nothing, but there's a proper term that he's referring to that I had no idea of. Yeah, right. And I think that in particular, like context just blooms this, right? I mean, especially considering, you know, can consider the construct of the book, the next 50 pages, as we've oft remarked, are difficult to get through on a first pass. I mean, they've, they stopped my brother from reading it initially. They stalled me out from making it any further on my very first, the very first time that I picked up the book. Obviously, I still owned the first couple, so I was going to get there eventually. But like, we've got a couple friends in the same boat that still haven't yeah. gotten past it. Right. And so as, as a part of that, like, it's, it's important to recognize that, like, the reason that this is brought forward is because this is the intent of hooking you with all of these different ideas, concepts that we're going to see bloom afterwards. And I think that, you know, in hindsight, from a construction standpoint, smallest criticism, I would have made the speech longer. I get that you want a page, you want a page hit, but, and this is a very powerful speech for how short it is, but also, man, this, this and in particular getting a long speech from Nero would be so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm champing at the I'm champing at the bit for that one. Yeah. Would have been great. I don't know what else you would have yeah. included. I mean, you could get more verbose with it, but you don't want yeah, to get I, into I think... like the content of the institute yet. <laughs> No, you you would instead elaborate on the different. So if it were if it were me and I were handed this by, you know, uh, a high schooler that I'm coaching in speech, I would say, let's talk about those components, right? Like you have inherited this legacy, but it is not free. Power must be claimed. Wealth won. Rule, dominion, empire purchased with blood. Let's break those out and flesh out the that before we get to this thesis that's supposed to gut punch us, right? So if we build out those components, let's talk about the rule, dominion, empire purchased with blood. Let's mention Earth and like the the fall of Earth and sort of the scourge of it. Let's talk through like the 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 silvers that run the empire and how they're governed governed and dictated. 
like there, there are all these like small components of, of legacy that I think that you could feed into and show gold in a way that would be negative to the reader intentionally, but would be chest pumping pin on the like it, it would be like truly inspiring stuff for those of the class, but not not good for the rest of society <laughs> in the outlook, a little less society. But yeah. I could see that. It's also a debut novel. So, you know, I've I've got no complaints. It's a good speech. It hooks. It hooks. It's good. Debut page of a debut novel. Yeah. First page. So um and the rest of this, obviously the mon- the inner monologue is intense, and that's where like a lot of the hooks lie, because that's your main character. You know, we we get the initial line, my enemies or I wanted peace, but my enemies brought me war. I, I forget it off the top of my head. It's in a later speech, spoiler. But you know yeah mm-hmm. so cool cool all right anything else on this one that's what i've got oh do we want to talk about the actual like literary or rhetorical elements this is the one that i, talked, I actually we like, talked about some but we, like we what's your, about yeah. some. there's the anaphora as we discussed oh, yes. you throughout the a lot of it but specifically the third section um you scarless children you do not know pain you do not know but soon you will which twisted a little bit but yeah there's that and then the only other one that i really like found was parallelism but i can't remember specifically what i was pointing to make meaningful comments in your notes folks <laughs> uh, there there are there are cases of parallelism right like you and i are gold we are the we tower above and also arguably paragraph two and paragraph three echo each other intentionally for that reason mm-hmm. so like this is you know if you if you want to point to what i was saying earlier where you could flesh out the top to give weight here what you would do is you would you would expand on Paragraph two, basically, by selling the reasons that those components are there to begin with, how the empire was won, how wealth won, you know, give, give explanation. Then you present this, like, execute, what is it, elocutio, which is the the sort of, or no, sorry, it's dispositio, which is the arrangement, right? So that's like, that's how you're arranging it. So then you're you're compiling all of the components into one, and then your your end here becomes very punchy because it is parallel in thought and theory and now you've you've gotten people into a rhythm basically of how this is going which is how paragraph two and three feed into each other which is parallelism in a way okay yeah so there there's the real lesson don't make I mean, meaningful notes on your <laughs> meaningful <laughs> comments on your notes and cross will do the work for you God damn it. <laughs> yeah. And and the whole thing, all of these speeches, to some degree, obviously, speeches and the general Western idea of a presentation and a speech are all going to like adhere to the five canons of rhetoric because that's sort of the way that speech works. That's how we believe speech writing and like essay writing is developed and presented. So like, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily adding anything crazy to the conversation on any of these, but more just kind of pointing to them. And pointing them out as a part of this. Does so. Pierce have a background at all in speech writing? Yeah, he was a political speech writer. He was right. he worked for well, and like just general was a political science student originally, and worked on a couple of campaigns for the Democratic Party. And yeah, okay, before going back to writing, 
I remember so. someone that we read was, I couldn't remember if it was Pierce. Makes yeah, sense yeah, that he Pierce. is or was. R.F. Kuang was a, no, was Fonda Lee a lawyer? Fonda Lee, I think, was a lawyer first. Someone was a lawyer first of the recent authors that I've read. It was either, I think it was Fonda Lee. Yeah, because R.F. Kuang was out of Yale, I think, or Harvard, and then wrote. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, with that, let's move into Golden Sun. This one, Golden Sun was tricky to pick a speech from as well. This is where I think more or less there are a couple of options that we thought existed and settled on one that is maybe the least conventionally a speech. It's a speech to an audience of one, you know, but it's, I think, still still important as it kind of forms as a, as a sort of lecture and lesson still. And still adheres to some of the formatting of a speech. As and such. it expands our, our options later in the series for who gets to give a speech. Yeah, there there was a there was a consideration here. I think I mentioned it at the top, but for Fitchner revealing as Aries, there's a there's a decent one there about like his sort of position, but that becomes more of an interrogation again, or like a discussion. Hmm. The like the Ragnar reveal isn't really a speech again. It's he's just offering his stains. That's a paragraph. You know, that's not like yeah. a. there's nothing substantial there. There um, similarly in in the same vein, there's Darrow's. Reveal to Ragnar. But that's also not quite a speech. Right. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of like close things and we still went with one that's close um so you know we'll Mm -hmm. we'll just we'll just get into it so this is chapter 28 storm suns so to give you a little bit of an update on where this is in the story you probably remember it but just to give you a a refresher we turn to darrow and lauren's conversation on europa in his old castle that we visit again finally in lightbringer they veer around the topics of the weight of war the legacy of violence that lauren carries on his shoulders and one that he hopes to avoid for darrow As such, he recounts an important story for Darrow, and speeches are nothing if not a way to deliver stories via narrative device and rhetoric. So, you know, I mean, truthfully, speeches are storytelling, right? That's that's the whole thing. That is the ethos of it all, right? Or the pathos of it all is that it is a story, and it's supposed to connect for whatever reason. There's a lesson at the core, but this is metaphor almost immediately in addition to a historia. Now I get to pick a voice for Darrow. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> PJ is playing the part of Darrow, and Crossland is playing the part of Lorne. I also wanted I want to I want to add or append here. I started a little bit earlier than the actual speech itself does here because. This is so incredibly relevant, and I can't believe I forgot it. And this is such a good talking point for just all of Lysander. How did we not bring this up? There's a lot of that, actually, in in going back through these speeches in just sort of a a relevant way. So Lysander is like an important character the whole time or something. Yeah, he's like he's like a dude. (laughs) Whoops. All right, go ahead. Uh, If you help me, I can bring your grandson back. Lysander has been raised so long with poison in his ear that now it is in his blood. He is not my kin. You are not that cold, Lorne. I've met the boy. He's more like you than her. He isn't wicked. Fight for him. 
You fight a tyrant to replace her with a tyrant. This is the same game I've seen a hundred times. Do you even know who you serve? I have a feeling you're about to tell me. I'll not stop being your teacher just because you've stopped listening. Sit. I don't want Icarus to be bothered by this damned story. House Augustus was always strong. I'm sure you know that. Even when Mars was little more than a mine for Helium-3, they bribed or killed their way into owning most of the governmental contracts, and as their pockets welled, so did their influence. They became, along with several other families, including the Bologna and my own, the Lords of Mars. There was one family of greater power, however, named Silas. They controlled the Archgovernorship and were favored by the Senate and the sitting sovereign. When your master, then simply called Nero, was seven, his father found himself in a dispute with Julius Al Bologna, Cassius's grandfather. Nero's father attempted to have the brown who served Bologna poison the entire family at supper. The plan failed. A house war began. Nero's father summoned his bannermen and led them against the Bologna and the archgovernor Silas, who had declared his forces for Julius Al Bologna. The sitting sovereign did not intervene and instead allowed the two families to go to war. Eventually, Nero's father found himself besieged in Aegea when his fleet was destroyed and captured around Phobos. Silas put House Augustus to death, sparing only young Nero from punishment. He was allowed to live so that an aged family that had partaken in the conquering did not disappear from history. It is said that Archgovernor Silas even gave young Nero grapes to quench his thirst, because there was no water as the city burned around them. After that, he raised him in his own court. Twenty years later, Nero, who had always been considered an honorable and honest man, much unlike his wicked father, asked Iona Al Bologna's hand in marriage. She was the youngest and favorite daughter of old Julius. With hopes of mending the lingering wounds of past generations and making Mars strong and unified, Archgovernor Silas agreed. Bologna married Augustus. It was a beautiful wedding. I attended, representing the sovereign as the rage knight. And I had a wonderful time of it. I'd never seen Iona so happy as she was in that stern young man's arms. But that night, when the Bologna family returned to their estate with the rest of their family, a package arrived. Inside, old Julius found his daughter's head, grapes stuffed in Iona's mouth along with two wedding rings. Cut, cut, cut. Along with two wedding rings. He summoned his daughters and sons, including Cassius's father, and flew to the citadel to ask for justice from Archgovernor Silas, as he had 20 years prior when the Augustuses first rose up. But instead of his old friend, he found young Nero on the Archgovernor's throne, backed by Praetorians and two Olympic knights. I was among them, having been told that Silas was a threat to the society by my sovereign. I did as I was commanded. The house of Silas was wiped and stricken from the record. I found out later Nero contrived an argument with the daughter of the sinning sovereign. You know her as Octavia Loon. Younger then, she convinced her father to give Nero the throne of Mars and his revenge. In return, she earned Nero's support when she led the faction that overthrew and killed her father five years later. That is the man you started a war for. I did not know this. History is written by the victors. 
I apologize for making that whole thing sound like a fucking cartoon. I love this speech and all of the lore or Lord with the N in parentheses that it bestows. (laughs) I'm curious, like, I'm curious if one Pierce knew that the grapes specifically would be such a meaningful symbol. Probably considering it's like the same book when Fitchner's head shows up with grapes in it. Um, but also I, can you imagine the confusion on Julius's face when 20 years later, like, do you think he remembers giving grapes to Nero? Like, they live slightly different lifespans, so I, I would imagine that they did. But was it... It was it was Silas who gave him the grapes. So it's not oh. even Julius of whom... So Silas is the one who feeds him the grapes. But it is on behalf of Julius. He, he retained him, of course. So this is ultimately still Julius's fault. I mean... He may not know the importance or the relevance immediately of the grapes. Figure it out later. As critically. Yeah. Yeah. Still, like, amazing to launch a very important bit of symbolism in uh, executions. Mm hmm. As, like, a 20 year old kid. Lauren is so good. I want more. I want more long form speeches from him throughout this series i i know we don't i know he's gone but it would have been really cool to like i don't know maybe pierce will write a uh, lauren's meditations or something like that it would be neat to get like a a cycle of you know call him call him like a chat book like a small book of like three different meditations of sort within the series i think you could draw directly you could do the path to the veil of course from lightbringer you could do lornisms right just in general or the the willow way as it were because i think that in its own way the stance is a meditation and you could throw in i mean how wonderful would it be to have a book of poetry from apollonius to cap off that trio that'd be so fucking cool yeah but at the same time if you want me to write (laughs) I feel like it would be more relevant instead of doing something like that to do like an actual rendition of the path to the veil. So I, I feel like. Oh, yeah. I'm saying like do a treat, like make it a trill, like a, a trio of like oh, little books okay. that you fit into one book, basically. Gotcha. 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 Like give us the path to the veil. Give us Lauren's meditations and then bookend it with like a little bonus of Apple poems that he wrote in prison. <laughs> Yeah, I actually yeah. actually that but, would be really really cool. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's easy to forget how how elegant Lauren really is. Um, it's it's easy I think to remember him retrospectively as primarily Rage Knight with a little bit of philosopher sprinkled in. And I think you and I do a pretty good job or a pretty heavy job of like pointing out the philosopher side of him. But these these are the moments that I think people should remember him for and his thoughtfulness. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it's it's really tough to to not 
come to that as kind of like a base understanding. This one, again, is kind of tough to pull apart from a rhetorical perspective because it is predominantly a story that is an allusion to the entire weight of what he's talking about through this chapter. The beginning of this chapter, of which I also almost pulled as the speech. There are two speeches that happen within this chapter. The first one is about like the weight of war, and it's about as short as Nero's. And it's really the reason that he doesn't want Darrow to get into the war. This is the exposition of why he shouldn't. This is like, okay, I understand that you've committed to this path. Here is like, you need to think about who you're actually walking with along that path. So this, I I mean, it's tough not to just read the whole thing. This was already long enough as is. So I chose this half because there's a little bit more conversation on the other one. But yeah, there's a little bit of irony to that too, because mm -hmm. Lauren is, Lauren, Lauren is giving this in earnest. Well, Mm -hmm. Not understanding that Darrow has chosen to go with Lorne because of his ruthless power. It has nothing to do with the merits of the man that he's chosen. Like, this would be very, very convincing if Lorne understood the full weight of who Darrow is and why he's doing this, you know? Like, it, it... it's, it's very ironic in that way. There, There is some deep irony. Not only that, I reread this whole set of chapters um, as a part of this yesterday when I was pulling the speech out. And A, the quickest thought on this, Tactus's death is very confusing. It is maybe the most... Going back and rereading it, it is blitzed through so quickly. And that whole like two-page spread is just like a lot of things all at once that never gets enough time to live to like fully breathed to become a scene in some ways like i can see it all clearly in my head but it's it's just complicated the the second part though is that darrow has hitched his wagon here and when he says now consequences there's like a dual tone there especially when you compare it with this story who are you hitching your wagon to like you were saying like this is the tyrant that you're choosing to serve or be a part of your force you should have anticipated these consequences you know in some ways, if if we want to be like kind of a jerk to Lorne or like point point out that Lorne is a fallible human, which he is, that is a great a great thing to bring up is like he he is exerting his influence in that moment. And like he's not overcoming his like his deeper nature, even though he's talking about deeper natures here. Right. right, like he, you think he would have a solid enough head on his shoulders to prevent him from becoming that person, but unfortunately, because of the first part of the speech that we didn't read, he is so jaded by the weight of what's happened before that he can't shake it. Yeah, there, there's simultaneously the like really. Uh, he is. Uh, I I don't I don't know the right way to put words to it. He, I mean, he's Marcus Aurelius, right? Like, we've we've constantly said that Lorne is sort of the Marcus Aurelius stand-in, right? Marcus Aurelius was not a very good dude. I mean, especially just in general to anyone of whom was outside of the central Roman religion at the time, which was not 
Christianity. And so notable persecutor of, of Christians and people of faith obviously went on rampages against Germans and, and the whole thing there. And in general, was not a very good dude outwardly, but inwardly constantly was like, man, I am not a good dude. But here's like hopefully a path forward so that I and people after me can be better. Um, did he change just because he wrote meditations? No, it was basically his diary of I hope I can do better in the future. <laughs> Still, like, you know, and I think Lauren mirrors that precisely. And that's that's what I think is excellent about Lauren as a character. Right. So, yeah. Fun Great speech. chapter. It's it's a fun one. I I I like with with a note of trepidation. I want to just say it's kind of not a speech, but it is a story. It's an illusion. It's important to the larger metaphor. And man, we got to talk about that first bit with Lysander real quick. Lauren disowned him. Yeah. Entirely. Mm-hmm. The only time that he really talks about Lysander in this book, he disowns him. That's something. That's something. Yeah, that's oh boy. That's that's interesting, especially as we've talked about like sort of the last blood of Arcos. Arcos doesn't consider him blood at all. I'd be really <sighs> I mean not the last blood. We know that there are some others, but like, you know. I would love for there to be a confrontation in Red God between Darrow and Lysander, um, where Lysander brings up his grandfather, and Darrow gets to drop this. This this is like a Mustafar battle speech. Yeah, like that would be that would be like on that level. You know, we kind of already got that with Cassius to some degree and Lysander, but it could absolutely happen with Darrow and Lysander too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love that as well. All right. Let's do you have anything else on this one? No, no, I'm good. All right, cool. Let's move in to the obvious pick, right? I mean, like the the tough thing is I was chatting with some people about the different speeches because I had to throw this together pretty quickly because we knew that we had to. And we've we've thought about this. We've talked a little bit about the concept of this episode. Uh, and we had there were, there are some really good ideas and suggestions. I mean, one that we avoided in Morningstar or that like I had a tough time choosing or not choosing was Severo's speech at the gallows. Yeah, because I think it is until Lightbringer, the only time that he gets like super serious character development. He does get some in Iron Gold. That's a little I'm a little I'm throwing a little bit of shade there. But like it really he blossoms in that moment and kind of springs to life in a way that he doesn't again for a long time. So had a tough time not choosing that, but it's impossible to not pick the tide. I mean, it is of the original trilogy. It is the speech. It is the whole thing with the rising. It's everything. So so it's a it's a thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. This speech in general that we're talking about, of course, is chapter 23 in Morningstar, The Tide. I'm subtitling the speech The Tide as well. I think that that is the logical speech or rising. I mean, you could really go either way. But it focuses in on the origin of this great rebellion of the rising and also serves as an uplifting speech for the generations of soldiers to follow. As we see this reference later in the series, this is one of those critical moments. This is a juncture. This is a change. This is where the paradigm shifted, as Darrow himself might say. This is one that is going to be repeated into the echoing eons of humanity in this universe without an intended end forever. 
The jackal is broadcasting all over Phobos. Darrow hears out loud through the speakers on his small moon. Eo singing her final song. My son, my son, remember the chains when gold ruled with iron reins. We roared and roared and twisted and screamed for ours avail of better dreams. This, of course, is the whole impetus of the very start of the series. This is the moment in the gallows that's being broadcasted for everyone, but the whisper that no one got to hear until, you know, there there were secrets exchanged a little bit in Golden Sun and whatnot. And there's this is this is the whole thing. So followed shortly thereafter is Darrow's speech. I would have lived in peace, but my enemies brought me war. My name is Darrow of Lycos. You know my story. It is but an echo of your own. They came to my home and killed my wife, not for singing a song, but for daring to question their reign, for daring to have a voice. For centuries, millions beneath the soil of Mars have been fed lies from cradle to grave. That lie has been revealed to them. Now they've encountered the world you know, and they suffer as you do. Man was born free, but from the ocean shores to the creator cities of Mercury to the ice waste of Pluto, down to the mines of Mars, he is in chains. Chains made of duty, hunger, fear. Chains hammered to rule, not to reign, but to lead us from a world torn by war and greed. Instead, they have led us into darkness. They have used the systems of order and prosperity for their own gain. They expect your obedience, ignore your sacrifice, and hoard the prosperity that your hands create. To hold tight to their reign, they forbid our dreams, saying a person is only as good as the color of their eyes, of their sigils. But now I stand before you, a man unbound. I stand before you, my brothers and sisters, to ask you to join me, to throw yourselves on the machines of industry, to unite behind the sons of Ares, take back your cities, your prosperity, dare to dream of a better worlds than these. Slavery is not peace, freedom is peace, and until we have that, it is our duty to make war. This is no license for savagery or genocide. If a man rapes, you kill him on the spot. If a man murders civilians, high or low, you kill him on the spot. This is war, but you are on the side of good, and that carries a heavy burden. We rise not for hate, not for vengeance, but for justice, for your children, for their future. I speak now to gold, to the Oriate who rule. I have walked your halls, broken your schools, eaten at your tables, and suffered your gallows. You tried to kill me. You could not. I know your power. I know your pride. And I have seen how you will fall. For 700 years you have ruled over the dominion of man, and this is all you have given us. It is not enough. Today I declare your rule to be at its end. Your cities are not your cities. Your vessels are not your vessels. Your planets are not your planets. They were built by us, and they belong to us, the common trust of man. Now we take them back. 
Never mind the darkness you spread. Never mind the night you summon. We will rage against it. We will howl and fight till our last breath, not just in the mines of Mars, but on the shores of Venus, on the dunes of Io's sulfur seas, in the glacial valleys of Pluto. We will fight in the towers of Ganymede and the ghettos of Luna and the storm-stricken oceans of Europa. And if we fall, others will take our place because we are the tide and we are rising. Break the chains. Fucking hey, man. It's such a good speech. I, I I have this perception of of Pierce's writing in my head and that it's gotten better and better throughout throughout the series. But maybe it's true considering the density and the quality of the speeches in Lightbringer, but holy shit, does this speech this fucking good. rule? Like it, mm-hmm. Pierce has been crafting bangers this whole fucking time. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, like going beyond just the quality of the speech itself, thinking about the situation and the broadcast to the audience, the, the whole breadth of the damn thing gives me shivers. Like it absolutely gives me goosebumps. Um, very clearly, obviously, the rising tide is a huge theme for the entire series. Um, and I don't think it starts here, but it, it's very acutely ingrained here. Later on, the red tide echoes that as well, as far as the war movement goes. I would be surprised if there weren't a fair number of golds that weren't that 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 were turned, I guess, by this speech, by this broadcast, um, for the fact alone that like it's pretty obvious there's a, a a lot of people, a lot of people that they'd have to go up against if they wanted to take a stance against them. It, it, genuinely, I'm I'm pretty sure this probably bolstered his own uh, gold army. I yeah, know. I mean this. This is also on the 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 hives of Phobos, right? So, I mean, let's let's consider two pieces of context that I think are important here, just to kind of frame this up a little bit and give us a little bit of structure to also break this down and add to your point. This is intended propaganda. This is something that the Jackal has absolutely engineered to be broadcasted everywhere as a part of kind of the deal and sort of taking over the network. Sorry, wait, is this actually is the Jackal taking part in this at this point, or is this just using his network? This is just using his network, right? I thought the Jackal was a part of this, but I... I feel like that shattered at the end of Golden Sun. Am I crazy? My, there, regardless, there was, there was it's, a, a it's an intended piece of propaganda. decent chunk of time when they were working together. And I think I, that's I'm sure that that was only in Golden Sun. Because then he gets trapped in the table, oh, right? And the whole yeah. table thing breaks him. And like, this is... I, I don't think that this is... So this they hacked. Into There's a little the, bit of back alley network. I forget. His I was, I was trying to get back into the this sort of read here. No, the box um, is at the end of mornings. Or... It's at the beginning because the entire first part takes place as the rescue of Darrow and Victra. We go here, then we go to the frigid ice caps with Ragnar. 
Yeah. And that part of the story. So. Okay. Yep. 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 Anyway, I'm going to figure that out while we continue to talk about the rest of the speech. So just, just for framing, regardless, this is intended propaganda to your point. This does help. I think sway anyone who might be sympathetic. And it's not like we don't know that there are sympathizers out there to some degree, right? Talking about sort of the basis of Aristotelian arguments, this speech has it all. This this is like, <laughs> this is very much the fucking Stefan of speeches <laughs> from SNL. <laughs> like this is, this speech has it all. This has <laughs> the breakdown of like ethos, pathos, and logos, obviously. It also contains the five canons of literature. Did you know that it's also totally... Uh, an intended piece of propaganda that's meant to potentially shift as many people as possible out of their cells in this moment so that they could escape. Wow. And that's my best, like, kind of quasi Stefan impression that I'm ever going to try. But mostly embarrassing. But yeah, I know. Oh, oh, I didn't try the accent. I should try the accent, but it's fine. You it's didn't. you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like Darrow w- could probably give this same speech to pretty great success now, like at the end of Lightbringer. Well, he's, he's got different knowledge, right? He like does. one of, one of the things I, that. Go ahead. I, I just mean, like, it's still relevant, it's still effective. And you probably would change some of the specifics a little bit, but it, like. If you just plop the speech into the end of Lightbringer, I bet it would still be effective. I Effective, yes. But this contains a lot of naivete, right? Like True. the, this is, this is Darrow with like Reaper's ideology behind him at the moment. And this is what fuels him into the next 10 years. Like this is the, this is the modus operandi of the entire Suns and that whole sort of progression and action that he's like planning on following for a very long time so you know i i think in particular if we look at the lines freedom is peace and until we have that it is our duty to make war and that is that is still like a function of of sort of survival in the era that we're currently in in the story but it is also an embodiment of the sort of approach that he realized would only get that he hasn't yet realized will only get him so far it's a great way to move people to action it inspires them to action but this is not a the speech has a place and a time it is it is set in a specific moment and it is meant for a specific moment and as such it is a revolutionary speech in a lot of ways while I did begin this with like, it'll echo through the aeons, that's because it's a pivot point. Mm-hmm. The next thing that Darrow has to do is then figure out how to change the entire, the entire point of the secondary series is what do you do after a revolution? <laughs> you know, like that's like, how do you actually manage the fallout? Of and that? there will so, be fallout. There's a lot of fallout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this speech 
especially for the cadence. It's part of the reason I read it the way that I did. I love the cadence of the speech. The pacing is perfect. Elocutio is brilliant in the way that this this echoes what I wanted from the Nero speech, if that makes sense. This brings up all of those components. It elaborates a little bit and sets the stage. On Mars, or man was born free, the oceans, and like these are the places we were trapped. Here are the places in which we are trapped. And then later, a great callback, a great recall utilizing the the process of or not the process but like the idea of a dispositio the arrangement to say like okay i set up this premise here's what i want you like here's the action and here's the result this is what you should get out of this and to like then re-reference all of those different places and say that we will burn the caps we will fight at the towers of ganymede the ghettos of luna wherever it's just this wonderful springing to life after you see the prison that you're in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah, That's a good man. one. There, a good one. There's so much intended anaphora in this speech that is like repetition. It's, it's that pacing. It's the you. It's the we. It's the slavery is not peace. Freedom is peace. And like these like direct allusions not a whole lot in the way of like immediate metaphor as is necessary because this is a very literal presentation. This is mostly a logos argument for, for freedom. Yeah. Yeah. There really isn't metaphor in any sort of way. No. Yeah. This is predominantly a logical argument. The, his addressing of the of the golds like we've talked a little bit about already too is is interesting because that is maybe the closest thing to like illusion we get and sort of like the idea of like you know what's happened my story has spread through the stars is is sort of the vibe that you get from from those segments you you've heard the whispers you've tried to kill me um so you failed And then break the chains is rallying cry. I couldn't even I couldn't even do it justice. I mean, when like trying to go through it all um, in my own head, as I was thinking about it, I was like, how do you how do you do break the chains? Like, how do you say that with enough gusto? Uh, I just, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure on that. <laughs> You've got to have the gusto a to bit do of, it. <laughs> there's a lot of gusto. That's like yeah. that's like a it's like a shout and an affectation and like an uproar around you and behind you, which is what it feels like in the text. Again, extracting just the words from the speech is great. Mm-hmm. It's a strong speech. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is the whole series. This is like this Darrow's of our, of our ones that we chose. There are so many good Darrow speeches, but this is the one. I mean, it, I like the Athena speech more, but this is, Yeah. I agree. This is this sets up a ton and mm-hmm. and is r- referred to often directly or indirectly. This is what sets up the idea of I would I would argue this kind of sets him apart as a god of war and the martyr, or not the martyr, the, oh God, who's talking? I feel like it's around or included within like what we're going to talk about in Lightbringer. The idea of fighting a, fighting an army whose 
God is mm. is still alive. What that is iron gold. That's iron. we're going to talk about the next. So I don't I don't feel too bad about okay. it. I mean, we're going to do a different speech from iron gold first. We cheated with iron gold because there are so many good iron gold speeches. Just so we you know, ahead of time, we're going to talk about it in a moment. We didn't um, cheat because we but, set the parameters as one or two. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and the only one that we pulled two from was iron gold because goddamn, were they really good on yeah. reflection? But right, yeah, that yeah. speech in particular is Romulus's. Yeah. And that is, it is such a good speech where their God is alive yet. <laughs> and you know, like that is also probably a part of the reason that the book is titled Red God. So, um, I've got a it. lot to say about that, that speech for sure. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is God on display publicly for the first time as the face of the rising, really. Mm -hmm. Sorry to broadcast it everywhere to to go back to the jackal point for the record. uh, At this point, he kind of baited the jackals cameras in because the jackal thought that he had them trapped. Uh, That's what it was. Yeah. After the kidnapping of Regulus and whatnot. So or the supposed. But yeah. Gotcha. So, anything else on this lovely Morning Star speech? I don't believe so. All right, cool. With one of the best speeches in the entire series behind us, let's move into, I think, one of the more interesting picks when I was going through and looking at speeches. I, I found this one on a lark when I was flipping through trying to figure out what speech I wanted to pull from Iron Gold, because there are several in this one that are excellent. There's some wonderful discussions. There are great debates. You even had mentioned like there's a, a lovely story speech that could kind of mirror the Lorne thing with Felipe Deliria, which I think would be excellent. Right. To have pulled. Yeah. I, for some reason, I, I think I put that in dark age. You did, but, but you know, you were still right on with like content. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's the sovereign speech to all the people at the camps. There are a number of different wonderful talking points in what, in my opinion, is the most underlooked book of this entire series or overlooked book under underrated book. And I think I stand by especially reading through the couple of chapters that I did to pull this. I I think. I think this is my favorite book still. I think that Lightbringer is excellent and i think especially for the sequel series without considering the original trilogy because i i truly just think the sequel series outclass outclasses it entirely now my brain has fallen out i love golden sun don't get me wrong favorite of the original trilogy but i think i go iron gold lightbringer dark age yeah pretty cleanly after rereading just a couple of passages that i did so or a couple of chapters okay so with that the first speech we're going to talk about in Iron Gold is from chapter 52, and that speech is the host of the Minotaur. And I can't believe I didn't think about pulling an Apollonius speech on like the precipice of like doing this whole thing. There are so many like good monologues, but this one is a fucking banger of a speech, especially from a villain, which I feel like is important to include. This is everything I wanted from Nero's, like in the long run, but yeah. like it's got just that signature flavor on it. And there's the weird sort of setting of this is he really a villain at this point mm-hmm. it's strange bedfellows to be sure but 
Yeah, and like Darrow is among the crowd listening to this in the mm-hmm. moment, and he's even calling him out. Like he's calling, like he's right there, basically right next, like not right next to him, but he's like near. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> While this whole thing is going down, so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of context that's important. So to give you just a little bit of a refresher, you want to read the, the little top bit. Cut, cut, cut. Yeah. I should mm-hmm. just. I'm gonna bold the next couple. We reunite with Apollonius after he's made the call to his 911 troops on Venus that are uniting with Darrow and his small legion to take down the Ash Lord. I fear a dread illness has fallen upon the house of my father and mother. An illness that has leached the glory from our veins, the color from our banner. It was not brought by you. That blame lies upon the shoulders of another. But it was nurtured by you, sustained by your torpor. I look at you, and do you know what I see? Do you? I see Venusians. I see clam-eaters. Men of war made into simpering sprites and disporting coxcombs. Where is the honor of your fathers and mothers? Where is the fury of your fallen brothers and sisters? The Ash Lord and his simpering allies, the Carthii, sent them to their deaths on Luna, served us up to the Reaper like a Tremalkian feast. I watched as men and women you knew went to dark death. The Ash Lord betrayed us. It was not secret to you that I languished in the belly of the sea. No. It was known from our homeworld to Mercury. Yet, you let me rot. You let your brothers and sisters perish. And here I find you fattening yourselves like mewling kine, as if Calypso herself had bespotted you with wine from her tits. Was your idleness worth the price of your shame? What would your father say? What would your mothers think? I look at you and I weep. Such shame is upon me that only Lucifer himself would know the depths of my pain. We have lost our halos, my children, fallen from the grace of heaven through the fabled clouds and landed here in a boiling hell of debauchery and defilement while our enemies laugh at what we have let ourselves become. But all is not lost. No, no. The unconquerable will, the need for revenge, the immortal hate, and the courage never to submit or yield are strong in my heart. I will not rest till vengeance is mine, for I am Apollonius Alvali Wrath, Imperator of the Minotaur Legions, Man of Mars, Iron Gold." Today I ride forth on the wings of battle from this island prison to settle a debt and free myself from this foul affliction of shame. I ride to war, to glory. I ride for the head of the Ash Lord. I would not ride alone. So I say to you, my darkest devils, awake, arise, and reclaim your glory. But, I've got more Apple in you than I have Darrow or Lauren. That's for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. That was well done. That's more my speed. Good job. Thanks. Totally your speed. <laughs> <laughs> At least you've got the the vocabulary to back up the speech. 
yeah, I fucked up torpor, torpor, but you know, it was it was just about everything else was fine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hurt that I've been listening to a lot of Sun Eater lately, and by God, does every character in the series talk a little bit like Apollonius? If you want another pitch, there it is. But it, I, yeah, is good. <laughs> yeah. So this speech rules a. PJ, there are a couple of thoughts that I have, of course, about the speech. I'm glad you enjoyed my little presentation that was a little practice riff. For the record, for everyone at home, I've just read the... I dictated and typed these speeches in. No practice, no nothing. We had very little time. So <laughs> this, is all, this is all just off the cuff as much as, as much as it is anything else. But PJ, I can't believe that we didn't fucking ever... I don't think we did in our coverage of Iron Gold compare Apollonius to fucking Napoleon. It's the biggest no-brainer comparison ever i i yeah. can't believe it slipped my mind yep totally totally never crossed my mind or if, if it did hasn't since <laughs> you dear listener might know better than us if it ever crossed our minds it's since we talked about it has gold, been years so. it has been years but that brings up a good question of is is he gonna crown himself at some point I, I think he kind of already did in a way, right? Like he crowned himself in Lightbringer at the very least back on Mercury and like re-owned it, right? Like, and yeah, then but that's, as such, but that's like a little crown. Oh yeah. There's a bigger crown I mean, to be, to be maybe, had. Maybe, maybe he'll fight for the bigger crown, but I don't think, unlike Napoleon, I don't think that he is intent on being the emperor. I think that that's Fair. where he gets like a little bit of, a little bit of like gladiatorial justice in him. But like the comparison, the immediate like historical thing, if we want to talk about that for just a moment is like, yeah, okay, locked in a prison, escapes prison, retakes the forces, rejoins the fight, leads a second rebellion and empire thing, loses it again is put back into prison and not killed, but exiled to death, of which I think is likely for Apollonius, actually, and is actually the best sort of justice for that type of character in a way where it's like, you don't deserve death. We're just going to shoot you close to the sun where you're going to orb. It would be kind of it'd be kind of like the Quicksilver cruelty thing. Maybe maybe it's a little too much, but yeah. something in that realm of like inescapable, you know, prison. It's already happened once. More so this time. <laughs> put him, put him on Marcher. Put him on Marcher or whatever the hell, right? Like, put yeah. him on one of those garbage planets. I can see that being his exile. He can make a little garbage crown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'd be pretty exactly. good. Yeah. Um, looking at this speech, alongside some of the other ones that we're dissecting today, I, I'm still astonished by how is effortlessly and it's probably not effortless there's probably a lot of effort that goes into it but how seemingly effortlessly pierce brown is able to construct speeches in a way that doesn't slip into like a speech voice it maintains (laughs) the voice of the character throughout the entire thing like if you knew apollonius and you heard the speech and somehow he didn't mention his own name in the speech, you'd still know exactly who it was, right? Like, he he has such a voice to him, and it still is very, very, very present. I'd argue even more, like, potently present within his speeches than it is even his speaking voice. Say you haven't even read this series. You can hear the different voices of each of these characters between the speeches. Totally. And... Perhaps none more pronounced than Apollonius. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty unique. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
it's also a wildly different motivating device than mm-hmm. uh, what's implemented by Darrow. Like Darrow is motivating on the promise of justice and freedom and uh, fighting for a better future, not only for yourself, but for your kin and for everybody. Apple, on the other hand, is uh, relying on shame and selfishness and glory. It's accountability. Yeah. Yeah. For him, for him, he's putting it on them. He's putting this on. This is your failure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's obviously a very different audience and a very different goal, but similar in the, in, in terms of efficacy. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've oft compared Darrow and Apple and sort of their, their stylings and the way that they impact the story. I mean, Apple is a, a villain specifically introduced in the second series, of course. So there is a, a nice direct parallel as far as characters go. But even if you create parallels between speeches and motivations of Darrow or of Apple versus the Reaper, they mirror each other on opposite sides, right? Like, I, I kind of wish we would have pulled a Reaper speech just for fun to draw that comparison, but. As such, I think we can do it without even needing the textual comparison yeah. because it is at this point in both of their lives, while, like you were saying, the end goals are different, they're motivating in very similar ways. They're speaking to the core of the people in some facet. One is through guilt and one is through necessity. And what is guilt if what is necessity, if not guilt by intent of humanity or need for hu- human needs on the Maslow's pyramid like you know Mm -hmm. I don't know the guilt of existence there's some deeper philosophical thing there I'm missing it but the guilt of existence yeah it's a base guilt it's really (laughs) everyone has it Mm -hmm. but yeah I I adore this speech for so many reasons I mean obviously again there's an aphora everywhere there's wonderful illusions there is this again we've put it but there's like guilt the mewling kind as if calypso herself had bespotted you with wine from her tits like because these people have just sat on their laurels and there's a fucking war going on like regardless of what you think about the side that they're on like these folks on (laughs) venus have just fucked off kind of like i mean less less like venus would and more like oh god what's his name d starts with a d dionysus would yeah, yeah they're, they're more just wanting to say diomedes and i knew i also was, was thinking just diomedes <laughs> and i was like that's not right uh but more like dionysius in in sort of intent and, and purpose yeah i mean it's mm-hmm. it's glorious i i i stumbled into this one when i was trying to find the other one and i went well, there's no way I'm not doing that one now. <laughs> it's too fucking good. It's way too good. It's way too good. There's just, there's so much to this. I mean, like the Trimalchian feast, the like, the idea of this like rallying against a similar enemy that is the same as Darrow. So he's playing to multiple sides at the same time. He's got two audiences that he's speaking to. He's got to obviously rally the troops, but he has to make sure that he like doesn't piss off Darrow so much, even though they're kind of, you know, they're strange bedfellows in this moment. Mm -hmm. It's, it's wonderful. I, the clam eaters comment will always get me. Clam eaters is really good. Clam eaters is pretty good. I see Venusians. I yeah, see just the way, eaters. even yeah. TGR's 
uh, presentation yeah. of this. I, I still remember all of TGR's deliveries oh, are better God. than mine. For oh, the record, fuck. yeah, yeah, they're but incredible. Like, I, I still remember the way that he says Venusians. Yeah, mm-hmm. and spits it. Everything. It's there's just it's dripping with this malaise venom, and it is so. Ugh, it's palpable. I love I love when Apollonius speaks, but I especially love when he's given the time to monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, two people, not just monologue for himself. I do like that, but I don't That's like it quite as much as when he's addressing a crowd. Like it is, it, it's definitely fun. But his moment in the jail, which is an inter- introduction, isn't as strong as this is. It isn't as strong as his moment that happens in Lightbringer when addressing in Mars Must Fall, right? Like, he is yeah. a really good speech in Mars Must Fall in the middle of a really good speech. So, he, And Lysander even says that he, like, forced him to tone down his grandiloquence for yeah. that speech. Yeah. And it's still right. great. Yeah. And it's still grandiloquent in, in only a way that <laughs> Apollonius in the series could feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm glad. I'm glad that stumbled into this one because i had very different intents going into iron gold and even this idea of like approaching a speech episode i was gonna be like well we're gonna talk about darrow a lot and we ended up only we stuck with the one character rule which was a good one so it was a good rule good idea i don't remember if it was my idea or your idea but i'm gonna compliment i think i just i threw it out because i found speeches that were all by different characters and i was like okay we're only gonna do one per character it's Mm -hmm. a rule so yeah. um did did you have anything else on this bad boy i think i think we covered it okay yeah. cool yeah i love this one so pj do you want to talk a little bit about our second speech here yeah from chapter 61 the moon lord the second speech of the book iron gold Talks about an iron gold or is given by an iron gold, I, I believe. Um, it's hard to come up with another character that exemplifies that title better than Romulus Ow Ra. So this is at the climax of the story. This is the Moon Lord. This is him addressing... The rest of the Ra, the rest of the Rim Dominion, it's his tribe. essentially. Yeah. It's, it's his tribe, yeah. yeah. So, yep. um, with that, Crossland, can you deliver us a speech? Yeah, so, to, to start this off, um, Dido starts off having turned him in, saying, you know, having delivered this whole thing about, like, addressing it and making it so she believes that he can still live as her, like, eternal lover and whatnot, but also holding account holding account for the actions of what had happened for him right and so like he's he's about to be held in account above and beyond what she had intended with calling him to trial as the as the singular leader of the moonies as they were so dido starts off having just turned him in saying tell them you're lying tell them you had suspicions but didn't know And he goes and he starts, but I knew, I knew because the hollow drop you sent Serafina to collect was offered to me first. It was offered to me. Several images were sent, 
I invited the brokers to the rim where they met around enchiladas. I in enchiladas. Enchiladas. I don't fucking know how that planet's name or how the moon's name is said, but we'll keep it for now. Cut, cut, cut. I relied upon my reputation of honor to lure them in the original copy there. I took out a warhawk and killed them all and burned their ship. Of course, as you have seen, there was a copy. <clears throat> you you did this by yourself? It's like Yoda as Helios? I don't know. Okay. I am Romulus Aura. You might ask yourself why I did this. Why I tell you this now when it will cost me my own life. All my days I have lived as honorably as a man can, but I have carried this secret for too long. And as my father would ask, what is honor without truth? Honor is not what you say. Honor is what you do. We live by a code. I broke that code, even if my reasons for doing so were just. Let it serve as a warning to you all. I lied because I knew if we saw what the Slave King did to the docks, we would have no choice but to declare the peace void and sail for war. I believe that war will destroy us. All of us, rim and core alike. All that the colors have built together. All we have protected. The legacy of the society will vanish. But not because our arms are weak. Not because our commanders are frail, but because we are fighting against a religion whose God still lives. At this moment, he is mortal. He strains under the burden of rule, and the seams of their alliances fray. But if we sail on Mars or Luna, the colors will unite, they will become a tide, and their now mortal general will become, once again, their god of war. And if he fails, another will rise, and another, and another, and another. And we are too few. We are too honorable. We will lose this war just as surely as I will now lose my life. I urge you to feel my death, to let it be the last casualty, and not the first of this war that claimed my father, my daughter, my son, and now me. Here again is that tide motif that we've talked about a few times and are constantly <laughs> faced with throughout the entire story. So it's not surprising to see it pop up here, but I like that we see it through the eyes of those who would fight against that tide. We're seeing Darrow's speech and this speech in the same episode, which is kind of cool to put it on display. And, and really dig into the differences of the perspective of the rising. Darrow is referring to it as a tide already, while Romulus is describing it as a potential tide. If they were to attack for any given reason, it, it has the potential of becoming a tide. And I, I, maybe I'm digging a little bit too deep on something that's actually kind of shallow. I don't know. But... It feels like Romulus, who is admittedly a lot more progressive in his views of the other colors than a lot of the golds that we deal with, 
still seems to see the rising and its movements as reactionary or feral or calculable. Whereas through the eyes of Darrow, we get to see them for as they are, as intelligent and planning and capable. It's so, it, like the way that they describe it is subtle. And I know I'm like kind of pushing a wedge between them to, to try to force a difference, but I feel like there's something there. And maybe maybe oh, I'm just overreading it. I don't think you're overreading it at all. And the reason there is a fairly obvious one um, that's missing from redacted text a little bit here. This entire chapter is obviously from Lysander's perspective. And this is shockingly in a reread. This is like almost the most vitriolic that Lysander is towards Darrow. For the entirety of this book and most of Dark Age, he refers to him consistently as the slave king in his internal monologue. He he refers to the golden eyes that are staring back through the different recordings as red eyes, despite the fact that they're obviously gold, but he's got that capitalized inside of his perspective. Like There's a lot of vitriol, so I, I don't think that you're so far off base to sort of interpret it that way. I was taken taken aback a little bit since you brought it up um i don't i didn't remember romulus refer like using the slave king term i think it's just a colloquialism more or less for you know that within this this grouping and he i mean he doesn't view what darrow did as a good thing right like he's not He's not saying that, like, the actions that Darrow made was good, and he's admitting openly that, like, he was a dishonorable man in doing what he did, but he thought that he was doing the right thing and for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he's stepping up in this moment, right? Right. But it's a, it is a difficult negotiation of, like, responsibility. So, yeah, a tough one to sell for sure. Something that I thought of when going through the speech, too, is obviously you you brought up the illusion of the tides and sort of the idea of rising and the rising tide and the, the Darrow speech that we had beforehand. Isn't it interesting that the Moon Lords are on moons and moons are what influences tides? Hmm. That is hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. From <laughs> like a, a meta- I don't point. I don't know if that's fully I don't know if that's fully planned by any stretch, but it's definitely a thing, you know? It, yeah. I, I it hadn't is. made that connection. That's really, really good. The tide is literally a generation of the moon, and as such, this speech is reflective of the impact that golds have on the tide as an origin point. That like even think works that we really well for Luna. Yeah. It does. It does have uh, mm-hmm. meaning on Luna as well. Uh, but I like to yeah. think that we've got it backwards in that our tides are what hold the moon <laughs> in our orbit. <laughs> you know, no one knows the real laws of gravity, so you're probably right. Mm-hmm. that's the only reason that the moon stays is because the tides keep it there right it sounds like a sea shanty waiting to be written we should do that i'll sing we it should if we or write it should i'll sing it <laughs> maybe it's one that comes from apple there we go in his prison yeah yeah i like that i really appreciate uh, I mean, it's it's impossible to say how much I appreciate Romulus's character inside of the story, but in particular, I love throughout the scene that he's counting himself as dead. He's seeing the results of what is to pass and is still giving this lecture almost from a place as though he's already in the grave, 
right? Which is which is fascinating from a from a speech perspective. It is a weird state to be in when you're when you're giving a speech, but I, I feel like that makes it that much more powerful. A lot of his commentary relies on it, truly. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's going yeah. to die is pretty important to, <laughs> to the main speech itself. So wouldn't it have been a little anticlimactic for him to not die here? <laughs> yeah. I I mean it is it is episemetic in in nature where like this is the intent of like this is preemptive knowledge. This is premeditatio malorum in the terms of Seneca, but like this is this is the idea of like premeditated pain and then putting it out in front of everyone, which I, I think is just so it's so powerful especially from a speech writing perspective of like, I know that I'm going to die. It, it also is very much in the vein of, I mean, all of the Moonies are just so philosophical and very driven by similar ideologies to Stoicism, especially in the earlier works. We get a little bit more connection, of course, to the Path the Veil and Taoism, which pervasive is maybe pervasive in the lower tiers of that culture of, of the rim culture, but doesn't maybe flow all the way up here. So, I can't help but see, you know, a combination predominantly of Seneca, a little bit of Epictetus, um, obviously the sprinkling of Aurelius, but in particular, Premeditatio Malorum is just all over this thing. And I knew it, this day the... would come effectively. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That the speeches, I knew this day would come. Premeditatio Malorum is the premeditation of pains or of ills. And so the idea there being... You can prevent ills from happening by thinking about them ahead of time and anticipating okay. them and preparing for them one way or another. Not just keeping them in your mind, not like anxiety that you might have about something happening. Happening, It's about preparing for the outcome. Gotcha. As it happens. So. That's the breakdown there. All right. Dig it. Anything Dig it. else on Romulus's lovely speech here? No, I had forgotten that this was Lysander's perspective. Mm. I don't know who I thought it was. <laughs> like Cassius? Would have been cool to get Cassius's perspective. Or Atlas's. Or Just Atlas's. Kidding. Just give me. Atlas Just was there. Atlas I'm sure of it. Yeah, he was definitely in the crowd. He was actually impersonating Helios in this moment. <laughs> Helios has been dead the whole time. Hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't that be including a that time where they clearly talk to each other face to face? Hey, it could still be two copies of the same dude. It definitely could be. They'd have to disseminate information somehow. Interesting. <laughs> how, would that, how, would, how would they share that information between the two, or how would they avoid there being? a lapse in understanding, you know, Mm -hmm. Atlas could pull it off. He's the only one that I believe could. Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) With that, let's move into dark age. And we're going to talk about Virginia's first POV chapter, the obvious choice for the book. It is Virginia's speech. Of course, it is sovereign. It is, this speech about the echo of Ares and sort of the general response to the actions that occurred on Venus 
to support Darrow on Mercury and the ongoing war effort. So before I kick into the speech, did you have any other leading in lead in thoughts here? I I would not if you had asked me what the intro to Virginia was for like I would have put this way later. I don't know why. Like I, I thought there was an earlier introduction to Virginia's perspective. And that has nothing to do with the speech itself. But yeah, they you know, hit the ground running. I, I think technically we can qualify there there are two good Virginia speeches in this. There are a couple more than that actually, but there are two really good ones. This is the first one in which she's actually a POV. There's mm-hmm. also the prologue, which is also titled The Sovereign, which is when they fire the guns for the replenishment, right? Okay. This that like that starts with citizens of the Solar Republic, this is your sovereign, and that is like the very beginning of the book. This is chapter 18, which is when she is addressing sort of the situation as they are approaching the approaching mercury and like replenishing darrow as it stands right the free legions the lost legions is sort of the first section where they fire the guns actually wait a minute they fire the guns in this chapter yeah well it's actually pj it's the same it's just an expanded version of the speech Ah. how have i never fucking realized that until this very moment it's a simplified version and then the full thing with her internal monologue. <laughs> Neither of us realized it. This is this is almost exactly what I wanted for <laughs> Nero. <laughs> Except for like basically I get an expanded version of that speech in chapter 18. Okay, cool. All right, neat. I'm having a good time. Fuck me, I guess. Wow. It just goes to show you can spend hundreds of hours analyzing a crazy good series and still miss the fucking obvious. There's been a <laughs> lot of hundreds of hours. We've a spent of, a lot of time with this book. With this a lot series. of time with this book, a lot of time with a lot of books. And, you know, we, we do miss things and we appreciate, you know, feedback. And when you send that in sometimes and sometimes I swear to God, if I get another correction on Darrow's height and from the Red Rising episode, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. But other than that. I'll send maybe one in, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. Gil Rastes. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I get it because you listen in live time, but for us it was three years ago. <laughs> so approaching four. All right, cool. So all right. With that, we're gonna kick into chapter 18, Sovereign. Citizens of the Republic, this is your sovereign. I come to you with dire news from aboard the SRN dreadnought Echo of Ares. On Friday evening last, the third day of Menace Meritus, I received a brief from the brave men and women of the Republic Reconnaissance Division. This brief, gleaned from our human and mechanical network of sensors, telescopes, scout ships, and informants throughout the Corps, indicated that a large-scale society military operation was underway in the orbit of Mercury, the largest in materiel and manpower since the Battle of Mars five long years ago. I considered it in the public interest that this information be kept secret until a resolution was found. The darker heart of me feared it would be my part to announce the greatest military disaster in our short but storied history. I thought 
and many studied minds, civilian and military alike, agreed that the whole of the Republic Expeditionary Force would be shattered by orbital bombardment, fractured into isolated centuries, and decimated by artillery, disease, starvation, and thirst. That the free legions, the beating heart of this great human enterprise, which has broken the chains on Luna, Earth, and Mars, and around which we were to build future legions of liberty would perish under an iron rain in the deserts and mountains of Mercury. Now I stand before you with that precious word on my lips. Victory. Attacked from all sides, bombarded from the sky, unsupported by warships or satellites, outnumbered by the enemy air force 10 to 1, the free legions shattered the pride of the enemy host, encircled and destroyed most of their vanguard against the walls of Heliopolis, and in the face of overwhelming odds, survived. That is victory. Resounding, but not eternal. Now is not the time to congratulate ourselves or claim we are responsible for this miracle. We're responsible only for this crisis. Lured by the false promises of an enemy... plenipotentiary, we allowed our (laughs) resolve to weaken. We are responsible only for this crisis. Lured by the false promises of an enemy plenipotentiary, we allowed our resolve to weaken. We allowed ourselves to believe in the better virtues of our enemy and that peace was possible with tyrants. That lie, seductive though it was, has been exposed as a cruel machination of statecraft created by the newly appointed dictator of the society remnant, Atalantia Al Grimace. Under her spell, we compromised with agents of tyranny. We turned on our greatest general, the sword who broke the chains of bondage, and demanded we accept peace he knew to be a lie. When he did not, we cried, traitor, tyrant, warmonger. In fear of him, we recalled the home guard elements of the White Fleet from Mercury back to Luna. With the echo of Ares and her battle group undergoing repairs on Phobos, this left Imperator Aquarii with barely half her fleet to fight the duplicitous dictator. Now her fleet, the fleet which freed all of our homes, floats in ruins. Two hundred of your ships of war destroyed thousands of your sailors killed, millions of your brothers and sisters marooned, quadrillions of your wealth squandered, not by virtue of enemy arms, but by the squabbling of your Senate. The Echo of Ares, her battle group, and the Seventh sail for Mercury in four days' time. The Senate says they will sail alone against the Ash Armada. They will most certainly perish, but they sail nonetheless because they do not abandon their own. Were it within my power, I would send the entire might of our planetary defense fleets to aid them in this venture. But it is not within my power. That power lies with your Senate. From the inception of this crisis, I have urged them to use it, to bolster this rescue fleet with ships from Earth and Luna's home guard or Mars's ecliptic guard. Again and again, my efforts have been rebuffed by the demagogues of the Vox Populi. They refuse to act, and they are not without support from you. I have heard it said in these last months, in the halls of the Senate, on the streets of Hyperion, on the news channels across the Republic, that we should abandon these sons and daughters of liberty, these free legions. I have heard them called, in public without shame, the Lost Legions. Written off by you, despite the courage they have summoned, the endurance they have shown, the horrors they have suffered for you. 
written off because we fear that to part with our ships will invite the invasion, because we fear to once again see the society iron over our skies, because we fear to risk the comforts and freedoms the men and women of the free legions have purchased for us with their blood. I will tell you what I fear. I fear time has diluted our dream. I fear that in our comfort, we believe liberty would be self-fulfilling. I fear that the meekness of our resolve, the bickering and backbiting on which we have so decadently glutted ourselves, will rob us of the unity of will that moved the world forward to a fairer place where we respect justice and freedom has found this foothold for the first time in a millennium. We have let our union erode to tribalism. We hoard our wealth. We abandon our votes for violence. We summon tantrums instead of gritting our teeth in common purpose. We aid our enemy. Even now, terrorist organizations like the Luna Base Syndicate and its franchises eat at our foundation like termites by funneling helium-3 into the bellies of the society war machines and the ships of the Oscomani Raiders. I fear that in this disunity we will sink back into the hideous epoch from which we escaped, and that the new Dark Age will be crueler, more sinister, and more protracted by the malice which we have awoken in our enemies. I believe this truth manifest. The free legions are not lost. I I don't know. I thought that was funny. Jesus Christ! This is such a good speech. It's so fucking long. I'm almost there. One page left. While we abandoned them, they did not abandon us. They did not cave to despair. In the cold of our neglect, in the shadow of atomic clouds, they triumphed. Yet, despite this victory, their time is short. They have blunted Atalantia's blade, but not her will. Pushed back to the city of Heliopolis and its attendant lands, millions of free men and women dig in to face the onslaught of enemy armor. Their supplies run low. They are surrounded. They are outnumbered. They have risked all to protect you. Now it is your turn to risk something for them. I call upon you, the people of the Republic, to stand united, to beseech your senators to reject fear, to reject their torpor of self-interest, to not quiver in primal trepidation at the thought of invasion, to not let your senators hoard your wealth for themselves and hide behind your ships of war, but to summon the more wrathful angels of their spirits and send forth the might of the Republic to scourge the enemies of tyranny and the impression from Mercurian skies and rescue our free legions. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, there will dawn a day when these hostile hours, these days of hatred and violence, seem the faintest of memories, but dark and steep and long is the road up out of hell. So do not tire, do not despair. Do not abandon your brethren, and do not forget that through this darkness, we and we alone carry the light of freedom. We must defend it with every cell in our bodies. If not now, when? If not us, who? Hail Libertas. Hail Reaper! Yeah, that's that's the call and response. Pierce Brown writes... Now that's a fucking speech. speech. And we say, banger. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the right answer, again, Yeah, for right. what this is. 
Obviously. <laughs> That's a fucking That's a feature. full fucking State of the Union. Like, it and it's perfect. And I mean, it is. That's what it is. And that's how it reads. Mm-hmm. And at times throughout it, I can imagine it being the like crawl of text from the beginning of a Star Wars movie, like giving us the background of what's been happening, which is effective and great, like <laughs> helpful. One thing that you didn't quite emphasize as much as I do anytime I read it is the your part of it. Like, these are your people. This is your wealth that we're spending. These are your ships that we've we've sent. I think that was very, very <laughs> effective. And uh, yeah, that's totally meaningful. an Actio thing. This this was not a speech compared to the other ones. I knew that this was what I was going to do and did not read it, did not transcribe it comparatively. So I had none of it in my brain and was totally reading it fresh. You're 100% correct. In a delivery, there were like those very clear pronunciations that just would come out because of the style here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And Which is that anaphora again. Right. That's yeah. such a such a word I'm never going to remember. <laughs> I'm going to remember it forever because of this episode, actually. So. All right. It's well, it's locked in. I'll remember that there's a word for it and then I'll <laughs> look it up. <laughs> and then you'll ask me, what was that word? And I'll be like an Afra. And that's all you need. Mm-hmm. No, man, I, I actually, again, I knew from the outset that this was the pick for this book. So I didn't even read it. I didn't even think about prepping anything for it, but then reading it, I'm like, this is, this is a perfect speech front to back. This is what I wanted from Nero's speech. This is all of those, breadcrumbs to lead into that execution that you want it has the illusion and the callbacks it has the preamble to the postamble this is an in memoriam of decisions it has called action everywhere i mean this is littered with style i i could genuinely do like a full 40 minute talk through of just this speech given enough time and prep to like break it down because this is this is a fucking speech the rest of them have been mostly like have been excellent, like short, shorter, like bitier, punchier bits. But this is a full I, I didn't even realize that it took me 10 minutes to read it <laughs> while I was reading it because it's it's just so good. It's it's yeah. Yeah. Fuck. It's very good. And also. This is a great example of. This is a very, very good read, and it's emotional, and I'd argue probably more emotional when you read it front to back with all the internal monologue. Mm -hmm. Like That lends a ton of emotion to it. She pauses for dramatic effect, right? To give you the feeling of being in the speech. But also, like, the brothers and sisters thing. She mentions in her internal monologue that she's, like, her, her voice is breaking, and she has to retake it. It... So you get all that emotion and everything, but if you strip that all away, it's still a fucking awesome speech. <laughs> right. And I yeah, think that it's still, yeah, yeah, that, that's what it makes it a, a great speech in my mind is it can be stripped of all of the context and internal monologue and still stand up on its own. If I were still coaching speech to this day, I would throw this. We we did this a couple of times inside of the category of great speeches because 
I was trying to expand the category intentionally to include fiction because I think people can write excellent, excellent fictional speeches that have a lot of impact and you don't need to just be talking about history. You can talk about other things. And so we did this a couple of times instead of the category for fun for kids. And we saw a lot of a lot of impact and like a lot of positive reception to some of them. This is a great one. It literally took 10 minutes for me to walk through the whole speech. And that is the duration of a of a great speech. You need to fit in some analysis in a concise way. But like you could cut a little bit here and there and like make it work. I don't know. I love this. I I didn't anticipate appreciating it quite as much. But there's also just those like perfect bookends on the speech of her out loud pronunciation of Hail Libertas and then the secret of Endure, right? Like that that sort mm-hmm. of like different message, like the internal versus external there is I mean that's the punchy that's the heart punching bit for her as a character versus the external push of this is what society needs yeah or the republic rather and then there's society the sort of tangent of her condemning severo's decision and all of that yeah man i mean Um, there's there's so much this is if you look at the canons if you look at the sort of any rhetoric that you could commonly find as far as analysis goes, you can apply almost any rhetorical model to this speech and you could break it apart with it. Like it is so well constructed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize that you had students pre- present this speech. No, no, before. I haven't had them present this speech. I'm saying oh, okay. if I were still doing it today, I totally would have kids. Gotcha. Do it. Okay. Given the timing, the length, the duration, I pushed for other speeches and other directions and other fiction pieces. So gotcha. Like Atticus Finch has a wonderful monologue about like and and that's like it's perfect because it also takes place in time. And I was like, we should be able to talk about fictional great speeches in great speeches, which pushed for a whole thing that changed at a state level. So gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. So that's it's a good example of that, of like, this is a great example of a speech that is even absent the immediate context of the rest of the story. With a little bit of explanation as to what she's alluding to removed, you it's just it is a perfect rallying cry and sort of a a. An indictment of. Demagoguery and of bureaucracy as it leads to a lack of action. And so I Mm -hmm. I think that by and large, you could compare this to something like a, I mean, I'd be super curious to talk to Pierce about this particularly, but as far as like a speech approach goes, this reminds me of a speech directly from Roosevelt. I mean, this, this feels like a Roosevelt speech. It, It reads like one by and large in the same sort of like wartime effort uh, it it just it screams Roosevelt to me. Okay, I am not familiar with Roosevelt I've, speeches. I've so. read and listened to so many fucking speeches that yeah, yeah. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it in particular, this one reminds me of somewhere between Roosevelt and Eisenhower. Um, Roosevelt in like a call to action to get everyone to make a move, especially because technically speaking, he was the one who broke probably the most laws as a president ever. But 
kind of necessarily to like move the needle in the direction that we needed for the war. And then a lot of regulations passed afterwards to be like, okay, that was kind of bad. He shouldn't have been able to do all those things, which reasonable. I think those adjustments were right. But Eisenhower in some ways in which there was a call to a larger press of action. And yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of that for me. A historical comparison. Yeah, it'd be, I, I wouldn't doubt it. As somebody learned in speeches, I'm sure he would. I'm sure he leaned on some historical speeches directly. So that would make sense. Definitely. But it would be interesting yeah. to ask him. Yeah, I would love to to talk specifically about some of these things. I mean, obviously, like we talked about with Philip and the next speech we're going to talk about there. There is a lot to break down in some of these. And yeah, they're just. They're so good. Mm-hmm. We could do a whole episode on this speech in particular, but I think by and large, take everything that we've talked about previously as far as rhetoric goes, and you can clearly and obviously see the delineating factors of anaphora here. You can see metaphors that she directly calls out as it relates to the inaction of the populace versus the action that's necessary to make the moves. You can see her calling into question the ethos of the population of whom has decided to deride the legions as the lost legions versus the free legions. She calls into question loyalty in a way that, you know, if we talk about the previous book and the previous one that we chose mirrors Apollonius's sort of cowardice in a more political, politically correct way for herself. And specifically also verbalizes this as being the Vox Populi's fault, which is a great political move from a state of the union perspective, but also true outright. And at this point, why later, but does the Vox Populi. I can't recall. Are they like clearly acting maliciously by not supporting this or are they like just in the background with with the syndicate kind well, of pulling the strings. I, I think it really depends on your view as a person, right? Like I, I think that this is one of those tough things to interpret because it's like this is a very political decision. There are groups within the Vox Populi that do not think this to be – that is not manipulation, but that they are being manipulated, that genuinely believe in their course – as a correct one for law. And I don't disagree with those groups that think in that direction for the Vox Populi. I think by and large, the idea of a military dictator like that is a bad thing more often than not. And so their response to Darrow from Iron Gold, I feel like is mostly justified from a perspective of, you know, the story and everything else. It's like, God damn it. Why didn't you just agree? But that's where the complexity of like a really good story is allowed to get in the way of making things easy. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Yeah. So, um, but a portion of them are being manipulated. Yes. So, okay. Couldn't recall. Yeah. The, at this point, at the very least, the the coppers are mostly in on it via. Was it Dano? Dano. Dano sounds right. The pure or whatever the hell. I don't remember. Oh, it's fine. Um, I hate that man. 
not Dax. It's obviously not Daxo because Daxo is obviously a telemarketer. Uh, starts with a P. Oh yes, not Pliny because Pliny is the asshole from Golden Sun. Publius. Publius. Yeah, Publius. Yeah, it sounds right. Feels right. We'll call it right for now. But yeah, Publius. I gush for this speech. I love it. It's such a wonderful introduction to to Mustang's character to just pin her as sort of the political talking point of a lot of this. And, you know, mm-hmm. I appreciate her as this sort of beam of hope in a book that quickly goes dark again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So with that, we're going to move into our final speech that we're going to talk about for the series so far. We might redo this and do different ones once the whole series is out, just to, you know, maybe maybe do like a full analysis. I, I very much enjoyed this episode. So it'd be, um, it'd be a lot of fun to reapproach this with a lot of time to dig in. Yeah, yeah. We definitely did this on short notice, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it definitely was a component mm-hmm. to to what we're doing. So all right. Ooh, so, I, get to, I get to put my acting face on again for this. Just a little you bit. You do. You do. You do. There, there are a couple of different things that happen throughout this chapter, so be prepared. But we are going to talk, of course, about Lightbringer. And moving into Lightbringer, there are a number of speeches that are very important to the story. We did say we were not going to duplicate any of the characters at the top of this. And so that means we can't do Darrow's. But we can do Lysanders. And I think that we should do Lysanders because especially analyzing it from a speech perspective, this is brilliantly written. This whole chapter, as we talked about with Philip, is like an action scene. And, you know, without talking about any of the interlocking parts that happen after and before, this is sort of the impetus to action on behalf of Lysander and one in which he finally makes probably like the first super serious choice that he's made all series to to push against standards that exist mm-hmm. so it's him finally kind of choosing a side so all right so i think that this speech easily is titled where have all the shepherds gone why should i listen to anything you have to say palatine serpent all can see where you sit do you seek to aid Virginia? Gold in fighting with gold. Is that not how we arrived here? How Darrow shattered our hold on the spheres? Why the dockyards of Venus now rattle with civil strife? We allowed our enemy to divide us. Bologna against Augustus. Rim against the core. We are victims of our own bickering. We're doing it all over again. Vox Clamatus in deserto. Can none of you see it? This is how we fall. Loon boy, you do not have the floor. You like games, yes? Games have rules, so do we. Sit down. Mind your manners. I like this little bit of internal monologue, so I'm just going to mention it because it's unique. But he says, I was raised on the rhetoric of Cicero and Demosthenes. But it is Selenius I channel now. Humility first. Returning to speech. Why should you listen to me? Why indeed? Diomedes was not wrong to ask the question. I've not shared the horrors of these last years with you. I've not stood shoulder to shoulder with you to hold back the rising. 
I've heard it said that I am a traitor, that I renounced gold to lie with the wolves. I've been called a shadow of my predecessors, a palatine buzzard returned for easy spoils. Catamite! Don't forget Catamite! (laughs) Catamite as well. Why not? Words like weapons and laughter can be used to silence a voice. I heard a great silence here today. Seated in the shadow of our dictator, I felt that silence in myself, and I would remain sitting, trusting in our dictator, had my shame not been too much for my conscience to bear. Since my return, I have sought to put the welfare of the society above all other concerns, including my own. I have asked neither for remuneration nor the return of my personal property. The ships, the legions, the bases, the reserves, I gladly give to the war effort. Instead, I put myself in debt rebuilding the planet of Mercury. I've used my name, such as it stands, not to win territory or glory, but to make peace where it can be made. I've urged conciliation between Rim and Kor, between Atalantia and Apollonius, between the loyal people of Mercury and those citizens lost enough to believe Darrow's noble lie. I seek the same object today. Peace and welfare for our society. When I was a child, I was asked by my sovereign what the society meant to me. I answered then as I would answer now. The society is a light in the darkness. My sovereign then asked what gold means to me. Knowing my own opinion meant very little, I echoed the words of our greatest hero, Selenius the Lightbringer. I told her that we are those who tend the flame and shepherd the human flock. But the more I look around, I wonder, where have all the shepherds gone? In their place, I see only wolves and sheep. My August friends, it is my belief that in our war to combat the demons of our society, we have fallen prey to our own internal demons. We've been at war so long that we've forgotten not only the purpose of war, but our own purpose. Where we once measured our virtues by our sacrifices, by our civic accomplishments, by the expansion of habitability to even the coldest spheres, we now measure them in the quantity of enemy ships vanquished, in the quality of the names notched on our razors, in the gross tonnage of enemy equipment destroyed, and the length of the roads we pave with all the bodies of dead rebels. I contend these are not measurements of virtue at all. Even less are they measurements of progress. They measure only our will. But our will for what? What? Did Selenius and Akari love war? Did they use war to line their own purses, to vent their rage against the ungrateful masses? Or did they wage war to sculpt the chaos, natural in humanity, into a future of order and prosperity? Our sacred ancestors knew what we have forgotten. That peace, not war, is our sacred calling, that we were to lead by our example, not to be led by our greed, our hunger for power. I look around, and I am humbled by your acts of valor and sacrifice, but we are no longer a people united by our sacrifice or by our convictions. We are united only in our propensity for self-interest, infighting, and greed. Let us call out our great worry, that it is only our enemy who unites us. But then, when our enemy is vanquished, that is the question that haunts us, is it not? 
That is what the rim console wonders. That is why our dictator withholds our forces. Why we all look past this war. Because we know the next one hangs over our heads like the sword of Damocles restrained by a single thread. If we cannot find common ground today, in two years it will not even be the rising against the society. It will be the core against the rim. Perhaps even sooner than that. Are we so ridiculous to invite another war upon ourselves? Have we forgotten the promise of gold to our people? They cry out for peace, for stability, the rewards for the sacrifice of their liberty. They are due those rewards, for they have sacrificed. If we are too afraid of each other to find common ground, by what logic should they follow us? What hope do we give them? What legacy do we give our children except might makes them right? What inheritance do we leave behind except war after war until the flame of mankind shrinks into the uncaring dark? Whether you respect me or revile me, you must admit we face a choice today, not as rim or core, but as people. Do we believe that gold should continue this internal game of self-interest and self-destruction to benefit a few of us, or do we make the choice that Selenius and Akari would have made? Do we reclaim our moral imperative and choose to work together to remind the billions who look to us for guidance that not only can we lead, but we will lead them into a brighter future? It is a choice too important for one person to make for us all. Atalantia, I look to you and I see a great general of our people. In our hour of desperation, we appointed you with unprecedented powers. With them, you have led us through our darkest days. Truly, your name will stand beside Akari and Selenius. <sighs> Yet, I cannot agree with your proposed course of action. Knowing it will sever us from our brothers and sisters in the Rim, knowing it will permit Virginia to devise new schemes for our destruction, knowing that this war will not end with the reconquering of Luna, it will only end with the reconquering of Mars. Dictator, you have offered me a gift without equal the reclamation of my homeland, my family seat. I must be a fuel to demur, but I hope I will be mocked as an honorable fool who values the stability of the spheres over my own interest. I cannot accept this gift, not if it comes at the cost of this alliance. I cannot. I will not. My conscience demands better from me than my self-interest. My color demands more from me than my silence. Mars must fall. Mars must fall. That is why I urge this sacred body, which represents our greatest minds, warriors, and voices of our people, to exercise its rights and vote to veto the dictator's decision to strike at Luna, instead to favor a resolution to assemble an armada and join our Rim Brethren to end this war where it began. Mars. We have the will to fight our enemy. Let us have the courage, the guts, to trust one another. Only then can we show our enemies, our people, ourselves, when gold is indivisible, gold is invincible. And I suppose you would like to lead this campaign against Mars. Self-interest be damned indeed. That's it. I, I'm good. At, that's where in my head the speech ends. Okay. Is before that, but with the indivisible and invincible. But yeah. Okay. Cool. So, 
just wanted to channel yeah, Atalantia. Yeah, a little bit. You, you had a, a good Atalantia there. God. Okay, yeah, Atalantia there. It was, it was a better Atalantia than a Darrow. Darrow is perfect. Darrow is Deckard Kane. But this speech fucking rips. I got shivers giving it, which is always a good sign in, mm-hmm. in a many ways. Like, this is... Yeah, I, we're here to talk about the speeches, obviously. Yeah, but I right. I couldn't read this chapter without reading the whole damn chapter. And all of the internal <laughs> monologue and all of the conversation yep. that follows after it. Mm-hmm. Ah, man. I just, I wanted to keep going even beyond that. I didn't have time. But it's I a beefy boy. Lysander has some really unique qualities that build up this incredible speech and and make it work for him. Like it works, obviously. You don't have those qualities and it worked for you, Rosalind. <laughs> Particularly oh his amazing memory, his knowledge of history of the conquering, his understanding of the complicated web of interpersonal connections amongst the golds. Eagle-eyed perceptions throughout the entirety of this speech. He's constantly, like, he's looking around. He's making eye contact with almost everybody in the room. He's looking up at Atlas, who's basically a black the sort of spider, like, yeah, <laughs> hanging out in the sea or in the rafters. All of this, everything about it combines to create an amazing speech and an amazing delivery of of said speech an incredible That's amount of ethos. tension yeah and just a slow unification of the room with the exception of Atalantia and her block but it, it's simultaneously an amazing speech and an amazing portrayal of a large group of people receiving an amazing speech it, it's so cool mm-hmm. we we talked about it being an action scene at length with Philip um, it, it it stands. It holds. It's so fucking good. This is one of my favorite scenes that Pierce has written. Period. And yeah. I, I know I'm not alone in that feeling. I I totally agree with you, man. It's this is again. I I think that the Virginia speech follows a little bit more of what I would traditionally consider like a a great speech Fair. in in the format of like this feels like a real speech from a real world as opposed to a character dictating things. But mm-hmm. that said, this does feel like, you know, and, and this this reference kind of sucks, but it's fine. This feels like something that Frank Underwood would say. This feels like a Frank Underwood speech given from Lysander, from, you know, uh, pulling pulling one out from the memory banks right at this point. But this just has that sort of intent and litheness in which he's able to roam around the room, gather those disparate interests, and then make them feel one through his use in particular of 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 ethos and pathos as he's making these arguments. And he's like, clearly you understand. You understand the history. You get this. Get me. You get this, right? And he's just kind of waving back and forth. And he's like, you, you get me. You get me. And that's like all of his words and the intent there is just to create buy-in with some people who've already been sold the idea but mostly to win over the rim and then as many as he can from Atalantia's side even if they won't admit it it's right so good i did leave in that little that one little piece of internal monologue where he specifically calls out cicero and demonsthenes fuck i said it right when i was reading it but 
Demosthenes. Demosthenes? I, I said it right originally. Anyway, point being, oh, God, he's so correct. He's so correct in, in his sort of sources and the way that he has pulled from these. You can you can read a couple of different letters and speeches from both Cicero, the younger, and Demosthenes, of whom he is kind of citing there were early senators. Cicero is often regarded as like the distant fourth Stoic but not entirely like he just has a lot of writings that kind of relate. He was, he was friends to many Stoics. And so like he overlaps a little bit, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah. To your point, you brought up comparing this to Virginia's speech. I think Mm -hmm. if we're looking at it from the perspective of like, without context, could you give this speech and it be understandable? And I, I think this one falls apart a little bit. If that's a criteria, that that we're applying sure yeah i Um, I don't think that's a perfect speech to judge by you know i'm talking about removing it and doing it for speech purposes and you know Mm -hmm. i know i i'm just saying like this one does lean a little heavily on the context and on the internal monologue and on the like situation that lysander is in and the audience itself and things that are happening around him while he's giving the speech how Mm -hmm. adelantia responds to some things and how Ajax is turned during the course of the speech. But all of that makes for just such a good, such a good chapter to read. It's delightful. It's succulent. It's just like, mm, I like, I don't know. The equivalent with food is like you're salivating for the next bit, right? Like mm-hmm. you're constantly on edge. And I devoured the rest Apollonius's of it. speech. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. And Apollonius's speech is just a continuation of the same idea of mm-hmm. unity. Like, the speech doesn't really end there. But I do think that, as a whole, where have all the shepherds gone ends there. So that is one speech. Yep. And then Mars must fall is sort of the second. That's the call to action. The impetus is where have all the shepherds gone, calling upon their moral failings and their sort of ethical failings as members of the society, by and large. So that I think is very successful through incredibly through. through. Yeah, clearly. I I wish this chapter were titled that, but Mars must follow such a good chant. It is a good chant. And I, I think is ultimately more important. Like where have all the shepherds gone is the means to the end that that is right. Mars must fall. Yeah. It's, I mean, if, if we're talking like logical, you know, devices and sort of rhetorical devices. Where have all the shepherd, shepherds gone is why Mars must fall. You know, like mm-hmm. because we've lost the shepherds, it is it is a call and a response as far as speeches go between Apollonius and Lysander. Like plant, choreographed entirely. This is nothing if not a just an exercising of dispositio as like a whole concept, right? Like this is entirely arranged. This is performed. This is pronuncio. This is actio. This is, this is the five canons. Like I Pierce clearly like obviously has studied speech writing or at the very least has read enough where you may as well have studied it. It's one of those things where like you just absorb so much of a thing that you just understand it innately that it's just so well composed. It feels like it is spoken in an old Roman forum, which is also the venue for this whole thing. So it, it feels like a Roman, an old Roman forum. It's perfect. Or it's in the Colosseum. Yeah. Yes, it is literally in the Colosseum. You are correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. What grander stage is there, really? <laughs> you know? It's uh, pretty bold. Pretty bold. Fuck, pretty man. great. There, there are so many good second places throughout this. There is... Did you have anything else on this one? No, I don't think so. You want to make mention of? Okay. I just... I, I've got, like, one small... small yeah, go for it. Mention, you know, like, as, as we talk about this, there is a wonderful speech that's given later in this book that is just so excellent. It's very tough to, you know... I mean, think about it in any other context, but... You know, Darrow gives this lovely speech throughout the entirety of chapter 60, The Weight of Guilt, and Diomedes is called to the stand, and he gives a a nice, punchy response, which I think we also need to give a little bit of credence here as we've been very verbose in the back half of analyzing speeches. We talked about this, of course, inside of the episode itself, but Diomedes says, Civilization is based on exchange and social contracts. I was taught that the low colors exchanged liberty for security and stability. We have failed to provide security. We have failed to provide stability. We have failed you. The contract is broken. Take your due. It's a fucking, it's, it's, it's a, a song. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it is literally like an eight line. It's almost a limerick actually given like sort of the nature of the beast, but like it has that assonance consonance, the like deliberate delivery. It feels planned. It feels man. In an old it's, Roman way. It in Diomedes' voice, perfectly. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just wanted to give that one a little bit, of, little bit of time. And when we've only been talking about larger speeches, like, it's, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes brevity is the soul of wit, my man. Now, you should start coaching speech again and then have them present that one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh <laughs> Yeah, so we want to talk today. We're going to talk about the way that metaphor happens and the way that allegory happens. And that's how I'm going to fill out my speech with a solid 40 word speech. My great speech is mostly going to be me talking and then 40 words of them talking, but mostly me. So I hope you like my great speech. I've already made up for two minutes of <laughs> of shit. Yeah, no, I. I, I really like this one. I, I mean, it's not fully a speech again, but like just the sort of response of being called to the stand to potentially be tried and to come up with something so simple, so eloquent and so honest is why we love our boy Diomedes. Yes. yes. We, so we've got six books and seven and a half speeches. Mm-hmm. There you go. Seven and a sixth speeches. Let's be real. <laughs> Fair. So that's probably more accurate. We are so grateful, of course, that you were able to give this episode a listen. It was a nice, fun bonus. It was a great idea. Thank you again to Killian for sending this in, or Killian for sending this in. Really appreciate you for coming on board with this one. So, yeah, thanks for feeding the idea train. We're always open to new ideas. Please, 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 if you have any that are similar or that you want us to talk about, send them in. Can't promise we'll get to them immediately, but this was such a good idea that we couldn't resist it. So, Perfect, perfect. Come up with some of those. We love those. Perfect alignment of getting this out. So it worked really, really well. I, we didn't have, we had other ideas for if. We did. But yeah. it would have taken more time and the episode would have been late. 
Correct. And this one is still maybe going to be on time. So we'll see. It should be on time. So it should I be think on it should time. Be we on think time. it'll be on time. We're recording this on Wednesday. This comes out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope you enjoy. Uh, but with that, again, the plan for the next two weeks as they remain, provided we adhere to the schedule, which we will, is maybe. we're going to have Zephon to talk through kind of our final wrap-up with Lightbringer, and then we are also going to be chatting about Salem's Lot by Stephen King, of which is a lovely little story about a small town and some vampires. And no spoilers, PJ, how do you feel about it? It's my first real Stephen King. Like, we 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 read that short story on this mm-hmm. show, or on Short Pours. This is my first real Stephen King novel that I read. I really fucking loved it. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, so we're going to talk a lot about that book. It's going to be tough not to because it is a thick boy and it's pretty important in sort of the early bibliography of Stephen King. So we will be chatting a lot about that book in the near future as well as the Zeph episode. So our next two episodes are that. And then we're jumping face first directly into The First Law by Joe Abercrombie. You can find our planned layout on our website, wordsandwhiskeyshow.com forward slash calendar. If you want to take a look at sort of the chapter breakdown, given they aren't numbers and they're named chapters, I... I'm sorry. It's not my fault. It's Joe and the publisher's fault. So you're just going to have to figure that out. Just text Joe. We'll get his number and then put him on blast. And you can at Lord Grimdark on Twitter and threads. And he'll tell you where you where you need to be, (laughs) where you can stick it mostly. But (laughs) 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 Um, you've seen any of his tweets. He'll tell you where to stick it. But or threads, whatever. But either way, very excited. Um, so that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to our very good friends Tim and Andrew for being the background of the show and for allowing for a very fast turnaround of episodes on Andrew's part. We love you, Andrew. We love you, Tim. Love you both. Also, check out the links in the show notes. As Crossland mentioned, uh, you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, a website, social media account. All in one convenient location. Yeah, with that, again, leave us a five-star review. If you don't, we will monologue for longer than this episode is in the next episode, and you won't have any idea what we're talking about because I will write it using a Robin Williams AI, which is nonsensical. Sounds pretty good to me. That's Uh, kind of a weird threat, but it's a threat (laughs) nonetheless. Five stars or die to Robin Williams' voiceover? I don't know. Yeah. Well, not voiceover, because I'm going to read it. But Oh, that's worse. Yeah, don't want that. Yeah. Find us on Threads or Blue Sky, Instagram, Reddit, at Words Whiskey Pod. You can email us like what produced this show. This, this episode was entirely because of an email, which was sent to us by a listener at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey if you want to join us there we've got a great discord community crossing and i are hanging out there all the time and uh we we, there's just a lot of really fun people um still you can still get t-shirts at t public follow the link we have other priorities damn it (laughs) (laughs) yeah we love you yeah, we love you, <laughs> but it's still on T-Bowling. With that, thank you so much for the support. We'll talk to you soon. Bye! 
Bye.